Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is created in the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and alongside me is Troy Eller-English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How's your house looking? It's, well, the floors are very nice. The floors look amazing. You guys did an amazing job. I The floors are very nice. Except the staining part. You have a little problem with staining, I understand. Not staining, but different types of polyurethane used in different parts of the first floor, but it's fine. We'll fix that next spring. Next spring. (laughs) That's the spring project? Spring. Less hot, less sweaty, because you have to have all the windows open. Mm. Oh, I was about to ask, did you mask up? Oh, we masked up. We taped plastic everywhere, you know. Good for you. Anyway, on to something completely different. On November 1st, 1948, the town of Donora in southwest Pennsylvania woke up to discover 22 people dead and 6,000 out of the 13,000 residents were struggling to breathe. The cause? An air invasion that had a sulfur-smelling fog sit on the valley for six days. This was the worst air pollution disaster in U.S. history and for all intents and purposes spurred the area of research on public health and the environment, industrial regulations, and began a national conversation about pollution. And what is often forgotten, or actually just left out of the story, is the direct involvement of the United Steelworkers who pushed for an investigation into U.S. Steel's involvement. When the state and federal government dragged their feet or wanted to hush up the entire incident, the Steelworkers, the union, led their own independent investigation stating that, quote, protocol should not be permitted to stand in the way of protecting our workmen, their jobs, and the welfare of the community, unquote. And how did I find out about this? Well, we talked to Louise Malone, who is a doctoral candidate studying environmental, industrial, and labor history at the University of Georgia and a recipient of the Sam Fishman Award for 2022. Louise is interested in what U.S. Steel knew about this disaster and what did they do and not do. But what I think is interesting as well is she's researching the involvement of the U.S. steelworkers on what we now consider to be a pro-environmental issues. Now, all year we've been kind of discovering on tales that the unions have been environmentalists all along. Unions have a long history well before most Americans became aware of the issues. They were being green and aware of the dangers that the factories were doing in the air, the water, and the grounds. We heard about how the UAW was fighting for their members' health, and now we're going to hear about the steelworkers. One can argue that it was the American unions that contributed to the groundswell of the environmental movement, and the spark was the deadly Donora smog incident. So please listen to this Tales of the Ruther. Enjoy. Remember, folks, the American labor movement did not only bring you the weekend, but also the water to swim in, the air to breathe, and the ground to play. <laughs> Hello, Louise. How are you doing? Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Thank you for joining our podcast. I really do appreciate it. No, it's love to be here. Yeah, it's always fun to have talked about different things within the labor history, and yours is very unique. Um, Can you tell us what was attracting to you to write a dissertation on environmental issues related to steel industry? It was all an accident, of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) You know, naturally. I actually um, had applied to uh, the University of Georgia 
uh, and was planning on studying race formation in 1920s education in Georgia, looking at, um, at white race formation. Mm-hmm. Because my theory was that um, it was really white race formation that mattered it, in terms of the problems with Jim Crow that, that were being faced at the time. And I got interested in that because I had uh, more than a passing acquaintance through a client of mine uh, with the African-American church schools. Okay that were there in the 20s and 30s. And as I was getting ready to start classes, I noticed in an email that there was a conference on urban heat islands. And I had always been fascinated by urban heat islands because I lived most of my adult life in New York and Washington, D.C. And so I went to this conference thinking there'd be 30 or 40 people there. There were 12, and I was only one of two students. (laughs) And of course, I knew absolutely nothing. But I met this great um, geography professor who was sitting next to me, and I asked him specifically about um, UHIs as it involved the changeover from dirt roads to asphalt roads and wood houses to brick houses, and we were chatting, and he said, there's this place called Denora that's had this catastrophic accident happen, and there's been some things written about it, but not a lot, but I, he said, I've always been interested in it, and you might be too. And so I looked it up that night, and I came in the next day, and I said, you're right, I am interested in this. And I continued to pursue getting as much information as I could, and then I went there, and I was absolutely hooked. Yeah. The people who were still there, and some who had returned, loved the community they grew up in, missed it terribly. Um, And you looked at a town that was dead, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, There were still a few people around. Uh, There was a convenience store, no gas stations, no grocery stores. Almost everything else closed. Great pizza place. There you go. Guy was from New Jersey. Knew what he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, he's still there. (laughs) Um, But the the town just won me. Right. And I just kept going. And you just kept going with it. So this is in South... West Pennsylvania. It is in southwest Pennsylvania. It is a Monongahela um, company town. It right. was created for the Union Steel Company, um, which was Henry Clay Frick, mm-hmm. Andrew and Richard Mellon, and William Donner. We know those names. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what was it like, let's say, leading up to this disaster? What was what was south southwest Pennsylvania like? in the early part of the 20th century. Southwest Pennsylvania was just a buzz in everything, right? Because it's the war and getting ready for the war and then the post-war period where we're rebuilding Mm -hmm. or helping to rebuild Europe and Japan. So there were literally tens, hundreds of thousands of steel workers there. And there was one company town after another. Uh, Carnegie had started it by by building the Thompson uh, Mill in Braddock. And then there was Duquesne and Clarendon. And um, Denora was down at the, uh, pretty much at the end, okay. right, of, of that uh, in the South. But Carnegie went out outside of Pittsburgh to Uh, because he needed more land, he needed to avoid the unions, and he wanted to control the polities that he was involved with. So this town had 13,000, 14,000 people at its height, Denora. 
It now has about 4,500. And it was buzzing. And it was a dual community because they had a sister town across the river, less than a mile, called Webster, which actually, because of the easterly winds, and it was also a little bit downhill, just got the worst of the pollution. But the town was just vibrant and alive. There were all kinds of shops. Denora itself had a Woolworths, a Montgomery Ward, uh, a real community life, 23 churches and a synagogue. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. One of the more interesting books written, by the way, was... um, was a lawnsman who was a, a Jewish steel worker. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, it sounds like a typical steel town, coal town, it whatever, was. where industry was buzzing, booming. It was the boom world and without regard for anything else. And essentially just, just get produce the product as quickly as possible. That's, that's efficiency. That's absolutely right. right. And, and that's, that was always the driving thing in the, in the steel industry starting from um, the very beginning of the big mills in 1870 with Carnegie and straight through with J.P. Morgan and and what followed after him, um, you you pushed these workers to produce as much as they possibly humanly and sometimes not humanly could, Mm -hmm. right, in 12-hour days and seven-day weeks for decades of that work. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just tearing apart human flesh as well as Earth's flesh, we could say, you know. And that's how we actually beat Britain and Germany. And the the Brits, when they came over here um, in the early 1900s, were just aghast at the level of productivity mm-hmm. of the American workers. Yeah, it was nonstop, nonstop. So or I'm about to talk about a disaster here. I always think of the disasters in Pennsylvania as the one I've always been fascinated about was the Centralia, which is the mine fire that's still raging, and they evacuated the town, and it's going to burn for another two, three hundred years. I mean, that's, that's amazing. But we're talking about the other side of the state, another disaster. Um, I've never heard of this disaster, to tell you the truth. So what was the lead up? What happened? Fill us in. So there was a zinc works in, in Denora, and of course, U.S. Steel absolutely does not deny that the zinc works was largely responsible, but the zinc works was largely responsible. And a number of things that happened in this town, just a, a quick uh, backup. So you had this, you know, these, these huge steel mills, and you had this zinc works that, that was galvanizing metal and producing um, sulfuric acid, which is a, a byproduct and also used in that process. And Denora is a valley town surrounded by hills. Mm-hmm. And Early, when they first built all this, so the zinc works was built in 1916, the uh, original mills um, in, uh, in 1901. And they, they built the smokestacks lower than the hills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is an area subject to air inversions. So they get them all the time. And an air inversion is is just this, you know, sort of hot lid that holds down colder air closer to the ground, and frequently nothing moves. And in this air inversion that lasted far longer than the others, it lasted five days, held all the stuff that was coming out of the smokestacks into 
this town. But what's interesting is that it wasn't just Anora. Manesson, a little bit further away, got that. Mangahila got that, Charleroi. They all were subject to the sand version. Only in Denora did people die, right. which is another clue as to why the zinc works was the cause. But what was going into this air was in a different, in, in addition to all kinds of sulfurs, right, and nitrous oxides and all all the rest of the chemicals, ammonia. You also had these heavy metals going in. So you had arsenic, cadmium, lead, and zinc. Zinc actually can make you sick, but it's it's not likely to kill you, mm-hmm. right? In huge amounts, some of these other medical metals can kill you. The other thing that can happen is that with moisture and a few other processes, sulfur dioxide becomes sulfur trioxide, becomes sulfuric acid. And so you had... Uh, 22, the official record says 20, it was about 22 people, maybe more, die. And you had 6,000 of the then 13,000 residents get sick. Some of them very seriously sick. Um, And and one of the descriptions that's probably the best description uh, and the most frightening that I've ever heard of what this looked like after about day three was in a New Yorker article that was published in 1950 by this great writer. Wish I could write like him. But he he talks about a doctor who's looking out of his bathroom window and he sees a train go by and he says that the the smoke coming out of the black smoke coming out of the train is flowing down the side of the train like ink to the ground. So that's what these people were breathing. Obviously affected, as we now know, because we've just had this pandemic, older people more. But the youngest person who died was 55. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they died, uh, several died in in, uh, Webster. Most of them died in, in Denora. And after it was over, uh, you know, the official statement initially was, well, it's, you know, an act of God. It's just a weather event. <laughs> I don't know. Why do we always blame God for the bad things that <laughs> We happen? thank God we blame him for everything. <laughs> That's right. Um, and it was the United Steelworkers that actually put up $10,000 uh, at the urging of people in Webster who said, we're sick of this stuff already. We breathe it all the time. Because there was black smoke and thick smoke over the town all the time. All Mm -hmm. the vegetation was dead, Mm -hmm. literally in both towns. And so we want to test. We want to know what happened. So they ran a test in April of 1949. And there was a preliminary report uh, put out that I have seen that clearly says that there were, you know, amounts per million of these various toxic mess in, in proportions that were just way out of line. Some of them way out of line with what the Department of Labor was talking about for work environments even then, right? Thousands of degrees out of line for what OSHA say requires now. God. So, so what happened with this report? Did it move anywhere with like a federal investigation? Did U.S. Steel get involved somehow claiming or doing anything? 
What was the end result? Well, the end result was that the that the final report was quashed. It never it never appeared. Initially, the local public health people were not were doing the act of God thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did happen was because this was a big story. Walter Winchell was talking about it. In fact, some of the people in Denora learned that their neighbors were dying from Walter Winchell. Initially, the three first two three days, they thought, ah. Oh, you know, the usual stuff, right? Um, and so then USW goes ahead and puts up the $10,000 and nothing happens with that report and it just goes away. But because it did create a big fuss, President Truman goes ahead and calls a 1950 conference on air pollution. And from that, there's a truly toothless 1955 Clean Air Act. Most of us think the first Clean Air Act was, you know, like 1970, but there was this 1955 and a 1963 Clean Air Act. But the, you know, that Denora will say that um, they were the, that it was their town that created the Clean Air Act. So put the blame back on the town, back on the locals, had no responsibility from the corporation to do anything. Right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. Did they do? Did U.S. Steel do anything afterwards to try to stem this tide of pol- air pollution or anything like that? They were forced to reduce production in the uh, in the zinc works, uh, so that production was slowly reduced. And nine years later, in 1957, that zinc works closed. Uh, what's really interesting is that I have a film. I I love archivists. Uh, from, well, the, <laughs> from the uh, Smog Museum archivist, Brian Chaltern, of exactly what that zinc works process looked like for the workers inside. It's, it's not the Denora film, but it's precisely the same works. But it was completely outmoded. It was something that had been built in 1916. But what's interesting to me about Denora seems to me to be the canary in the, in the coal mine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The zinc works starts to go down in 1957. The big mill closes in 1963, the steel mill, and all that's left are just some uh, finishing mills that then close in 1967, very early, and not the usual time in which we think of deindustrialization. All right, so this is this is the warning shot then. I think so. In fact, basically, this is what's showing that shows everybody should have been paying attention to, saying. Something seriously is going wrong here. The, the, the steel mills are shutting down, and the land is junk. Did the Steelworkers Union do anything after their report, after they put that money in? Did, did they start lobbying or pushing more about environmental issues, and did other unions start picking up this, this trend? You know, the steelworkers, I mean, what's really interesting about what's in the archives here is that the steelworkers seem to have been working with UAW, and I did meet with a gentleman named Michael Wright, who is now a retired occupation health safety guy for USW, and USW, too, started to move forward saying, we, we don't want our workers or people to be living in this kind of environment. And the USW supported every single Clean Air Act that was put forward. And most people think that that's just not what happened in the same way that they think that UAW 
was really not an active environmental union. And everything in the files here at uh, Wayne State at the Walter Ruther Library say something very, very different. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we see more and more research being done showing that unions were, you can say, pragmatic about their environmental issues. They realized whether it's where, peop- where their members were living or where they were fishing. The air, the land, the, the water was getting polluted by where they, where their members were working. So they had to make extend the tide. Um, but you know, we all think that the environmental issues started, you know, nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy one, or something like that. You know, you shake your head. I know what you're going to say. So, so tell us, enlighten us about this this environmental conservation groundswell that was happening before 1970. The first, in in actually this brilliant document that Olga Madar, who ended up being in charge of this program for UAW, wrote to get a grant, she references a 1948 first-time testimony before a Senate committee, I think it was the Senate, um, talking about conservation and the environment. And so UAW has a history that goes back to 1948. Um, the earliest reference I've seen in secondary sources about Walter Ruther is 1954. And you have a, an orchestrated, thought out, strategic program in place, starting with the clean water uh, conference that happens in 1965 with the UAW, and then moving into 1967 when Olga Madera puts is put in charge of this, and going straight through into the 1970s. So both of the unions that you would think would be the unions that might be saying, no, don't do this, were in fact looking at it in a very strategic way. Madera says uh, in this proposal, you know, our workers know better than anybody else what this is like. They work in it. They live in the urban areas around the mills or in the company towns around the mills and the factories. And they want their families to be safe and they want their families to be healthy and they want to fish and they want to hunt and mm-hmm. you know camp and, and do those things. And so you have that, but you also have something else going on which is really interesting, which is the real beginnings of an understanding of climate change that happens with the production of the Keeling Curve in 1958 by David Keeling. And he's being paid by the Department of Defense to try to figure out what would happen if we had a limited nuclear war with Russia, right? And so they see he and and other scientists working uh, on these projects see this rise in carbon going into the air. And they already know from what was discovered in 1859 that that has an impact on heat and cold in the climate. And as historian Joshua Howe said in his book, uh, Behind the Curve, we've been behind the curve ever since. But it's just not true that it happened in the 70s. It was all coming together. It was all really becoming apparent if we watched the signs and paid attention in the 1950s. And you have to give the unions credit. They were trying to get out in front of and strategically work with how they could make this better for the common good and also 
make this work for their members mm -hmm. so that their members were not left out in the cold as these changes that were going to happen happened. Mm -hmm. I, now, the UAW and Steelworkers were very powerful unions, right? Um, I'm sure they had the ear of someone in the any kind of administration or within Congress. Did they apply any kind of pressure to change policy, specifically with Kennedy and LBJ, especially when they had friends in the White House and Congress was kind of friendly? Do you, did you come across any kind of like things like uh, working together to raise awareness of environmental issues? Yeah, instead of you know pushing the Congress and the president, the president, the Congress was pushing them. Thank <laughs> you for you know thank you for doing this. Thank you for your support. Thank you for all your help. Uh, the conference on um, I think it was clean water that they did with Gaylord Nelson. You have constant communication with Muskie, who's interested in all these issues. There is a forward written by uh, by Walter Ruther to Johnson's beautiful country uh, piece and and his whole effort. So they were valued partners for these members that were prescient enough and courageous enough to be pushing for what we needed uh, to really clean up our environment. And of course, you know, when you're dealing with Lake Erie catching fire, it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, those things going on. So yeah, that brings up this, that right, I gotta throw this question out, I know was on the list, but so what happened? What happened to this alignment with labor and environmental issues? What happened in the 70s? You know, I I really don't know for sure at this point. I think we can say that deindustrialization was moving along, that we had the oil embargo, that we had all of these problems that were happening in the 70s, stagflation that comes out as a part of this, and workers become desperate. Workers become desperate, and and I think that the national leadership did probably did not know what to do with this, right? You, you save the members you have, which I think was the wrong way to go. On the other hand, I wasn't making that decision then. Easy for me to say now. <laughs> but the, the steel mills, for sure, were going to go down. They were outmoded. The, by, 19, by the late 1950s, th that game was over. Europe was going to be the leading steel area in Japan. That was just going to happen. And the same was happening with cars. And, and so you had to think the way that a Ruther and a Madeir and a Murray and those people were thinking. You had to think, well, what comes next? And how do we get ahead of it? And how do we make it work for us? And I didn't see that yet mm -hmm. happening with the national leadership. So I think mm -hmm. it's know, a whole bunch of bad things. Yeah. <laughs> All right, our last question, and we always love asking our researchers these, this question. Um, one, what kind of papers did you find in collections were you using at the Ruther Library? But where else have you been, too, in case someone wants to explore this, this type of topic? And I know you completely fell in love with someone here at the Ruther. <laughs> I have a brand new hero, and it's Olga Madar. Yes. Uh, she's just amazing. Uh, so the collection that you have is is terrific. I kept looking for a biography, and of course I haven't found one. 
But there's a great picture, for instance, that you have. So she starts out as the sports director in the 1940s, right? She's five foot two, and she's, you know, a, a strong woman. And it, she's sliding into home plate <laughs> with somebody else trying to stop her on top of her. And she looks just great. But she, uh, so the, the, the material that she was putting together, uh, and, and I say this as someone who's been involved in situations where organizing was important, um, her ability to look at root, grassroots organizing that comes shining through in these materials that she's done and to understand, for instance, educating the members. This 69-page that you're acquainted with, 69-page document is just, is just incredible uh, in, in terms of what her plans are uh, to to do an education program for these members that says you know you don't have to be terrified of this we need to we need to get ahead of this uh, and she puts it into into action uh, she clearly has the ability to pull really strong staff around her and you know Ruther obviously had that ability too because he picked her mm -hmm. uh, the do the documents the conversations the personal handwritten letters that you see from Ruther, for instance, uh, to uh, Stuart Udall, to the Secretary right, of the Interior, are just priceless. They are just absolutely priceless. And so I am so grateful uh, to be here uh, and to be able to do this. Penn State holds the records for the United Steelworkers and for U.S. Steel. And I have been there and will need to go back. Right. The University of Pittsburgh holds Donner's records, um, also Frick, and uh, some of the other attendant folks. I also would like to get to the Truman Library uh, because he tried to nationalize the steel industry. Oh, right. I forgot about that. In 1952. And the other person that I'd really like to get as much material as possible on uh, for this particular period of time is Arthur Goldberg, who was the attorney for U.S. Steel during Taft-Hartley, mm. right, mm -hmm. and nationalization of the steel industry. So I've got a few trips ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. I know you're going to be doing a great dissertation, and I can't wait. Actually, yes, I can't wait to read a dissertation. You know, I don't say that very often, but I can't wait to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was something wrong with you. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been great fun. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right, let's do this thing. Okay. Enough of that.
All right, I'm checking my levels. What am I? I'm now number one, right? You're, yes, I'm number two. Yes, you are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. You're welcome. I will always be a number two. All right. How, how, what's your normal speaking? What's my normal speaking voice for the Tales of the Ruther Library? Uh, how you doing? Today is 8.05 and the rush hour traffic is piling up out on I-95. <laughs> you just blew out my eardrums. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that is created at the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and alongside me is the Wonder Woman of the Archives, Trailer English. How are you doing, Wonder Woman? I'm all right. <laughs> you can cut that out if you want. I think I will. You can start over <laughs> if you want. I can. Sure. Okay. 